Welcome to Sport Management Review Insights. I'm your host, Vitor Sobral. Retirement. For most of us, it's some time away. But for professional athletes, it can creep up rather quickly. In this episode, we're going to discuss athlete retirement and how it's shaped by their identities, particularly in the last years of their career. Joining us to discuss this is someone who's researched the transition from professional athlete to retirement. From the University of Alberta in Canada, it's Andre Andreev. Welcome, Andre. Hello, Vitor. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity to speak with you today. No, I'm glad to have you. And did I, did I get your last name correct? Pretty well, pretty much, pretty, well, pretty okay. much did. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. again, much better than, than, than most people uh, managed to get it. I've been trying to get Dr. Dre to stick, but uh, still working <laughs> on that. Well, it's not a bad shout, but look, yeah, I guess my time in Ukraine ha- has helped me. So thanks for that. Andre recently published Identity Regulation in the North American Field of Men's Professional Ice Hockey, an examination of organizational control and preparation for athletic career retirement. Yeah, I'd say most research in this area would be on the post-retirement of athletes or what happens after retirement, but you're considering that period just before retirement. How did this help us understand athlete retirement? Well, the adjustment to athletic career retirement and the quality of the related transition process are dependent in large part on athletic identity salience or the degree to which one defines himself in the role of an athlete. And so the way I think about it is not necessarily that the athletic identity is something that happens on the day of retirement, but it's something that's developed over the course of a long career. And so part of the interest was how does that identity come to take a salient part of an individual's life or come to take significant meaning in an individual's life? And what are the roles that managers and organizations play thereupon? And relatedly, I just add, would add that uh, research sports psychology has pointed to the import of the pre-transition environment. I think one of the consistencies between all of them is that the pre-transition environment does affect uh, the individual experience at the time of, re- of retirement. Uh, Andre, I think it's really uh, fascinating that you're looking at athlete identity. I, I, I always think when we're, we're looking at identity in sport and social identity, we look at it from the fans perspective and I've never really considered it from the athletes perspective. And what you're also saying is that is actually a really important element in considering what they're going to do after they, they finish playing sport. In some respects, it's fundamental. And the way I often try to describe it uh, with my family members or individuals who aren't necessarily involved in this area of research or academia in general is you have to consider that for many athletes, They might have started their participation in sport at the time they were five, six, seven years old or whatnot. And as one of, as the alumnus in the, in my research study had explained to me is that a great deal of his life revolved around being an athlete and the way you define yourself, the way you find friends, the way you, what you generate self-esteem from and, and confidence and all these other sorts of things are all tied up with you being an athlete and being existing in, in an athletic world. And so if you're doing this from the time you're five to 25 or 30, and then one day you're told that you can't uh, no longer be this thing that you've known for the, for the large part of your life, then who, do you, who are you essentially? That's the challenge, I think, more so than any other that athletes have to face. I just want to ask you about the theory of identity regulation, which you use. Can, can you tell us a bit about what that is and, and why it was a, a useful framework here? 
I want to make sure that I get it uh, correct, or at the very least, uh, quote, quote the research correctly. So I'll, I'll just cite uh, Alice and Wilmot, who were the, the creators of the theory uh, in particular, and, and they, they defined identity regulation as encompassing the more or less intentional effects of social practices upon processes of identity construction and reconstruction. So in, in short, how managers and organizations can affect uh, the identities of others. And so they list, for example, teaching skills and, and knowledge to others or communicating morals and values or naturalizing rules and standards within an organization. So there's all these different ways that organizations and managers can influence how somebody sees themselves or how they see their work. And why it's useful here I believe that sports psychologists have done a tremendous job in terms of researching and explicating the factors that affect the process of athletic career retirement. And I thought there was a need to examine this issue specifically from the perspective of managers. In doing this study, you did a document analysis, but you also, of course, interviewed hockey players, some from the NHL. How was that experience? How difficult was it to, to get them to, to sit down and, and talk to you. I understand that could be uh, really tricky. I, as a, I used to be a journalist and doing that was tricky enough. I can just imagine as a researcher. So how was that experience for you? Well, I'm glad that you prefaced the question by saying it was, you, you suspected it was going to be challenging and, it, and it, it most certainly was. It was terribly challenging. Uh, and I only mean that in terms of securing access to the interviews themselves, not the not the interviewees. They, they were extremely accommodating. Once they actually were made available or once they made themselves available, they were in almost typical Canadian hockey fashion. They were terrifically accommodating. But uh, the process of actually garnering the interviews was just terribly challenging, nothing short of challenging. And and part of the reason is because the, the project wasn't sponsored by anybody. It wasn't sponsored by a league or an association. I was essentially a graduate student who was cold calling teams and saying, this is the project that I'm working on. Is it possible for you to make your manager available for a one hour interview? And first off, they're saying, who are you? And what do you want to talk about? And why should we give you any of our time? <laughs> What are you and selling? So, <laughs> precisely. Well, and and I was listening to uh, some ex-athletes speak the other day on the radio, and, and they sort of remarked about how PR departments, public relations departments, responsibilities these days seem to be more so about shielding the athletes from having to, to uh, talk to the media or individuals such as myself, as opposed to trying to negotiate access, uh, access to, to individuals uh, within their organization. And that was certainly the... Uh, the feeling I had, give credit to those who responded. Um, there's a handful, obviously, of public relations managers who are kind enough to actually hear me out, talk to me, to treat me like a, a human being on the other end of a line who they had never met before, but were willing to listen to me in terms of what the research project was, out, was about and to see if there might be a manager who would be willing to participate. Uh, tons of credit to them. The second part of the question in terms of the rewarding uh, bit of it, I mean, the the one individual I, I, I'd like to focus my attention on is the alumnus in the study, an incredibly uh, thoughtful individual. And it's not to take away anything from the other individuals who participate in the study, but the alumnus in the study, it's, it's the sort of interview that became a conversation in many respects. And he was my final interview. So it was rewarding in the sense that here I was having collected data for approximately eight or nine months, having some ideas in mind in terms of what the, the results are going to be. 
And then being able to discuss somebody who had gone through this entire lived experience and being able to ask them, not directly say, is this, this is what my data says, is this what you have experienced? But it's to ask some of the questions and to hear the responses that perfectly aligned with the data these are the exact values and characteristics that they aspire for athletes to have. And just quickly, I'd say there was also some managers in that respect too, who are, who are willing to let down their guard, if you will, and, and, and really answer the questions in a, in a meaningful manner. And so again, I just have tremendous appreciation for, for those who are willing to make themselves available for the research project because it's because of individuals like them that academics such as ourselves can, can learn anything and hopefully move uh, or advance the sport forward such deep understanding too when you're doing two hour interviews i, I can imagine the, the wealth of, of data there now once you analyzed it once you went through it all uh, what, what did you find what what was the um th- those uh influences coming into the end of their careers for, for retirement the study found that uh in essence managers regulated three different sorts of identity so one was not surprising was a was a two-part athletic identity defined by performance excellence and beneficence as i described in the article or philanthropy to be a professional athlete in in, in hockey or to be a, a hockey player in the north american field of professional hockey you had to prioritize winning again not surprising but there's also a component that it was necessary for you to be philanthropic or to give back to your local community. So there's a number of skills and other things that are associated with both of those motives or those discourses that define an athlete. But those are the two central things ab- about being an athlete. So, and that was primarily done by organizations, both at the National Hockey League and American Hockey League level, and by teams in particular. So, so managers at the team level saying, we want you to be an athlete, essentially, and here's what it takes, and here's what's involved with being an athlete. And then, alternatively, you had the Professional Hockey Players Association, which was the the, the minor league, or the Association for Minor League Players at the American Hockey League and ECHL. And they were attempting to construct identity that was largely self-directed and and apart from the hockey identity. Essentially, the Professional Hockey Players Association wanted athletes and their membership to construct an identity that was separate from sport. So they said, if you're interested in becoming a firefighter or a teacher or a real estate salesman or, or a plumber or any other trade or whatnot... You know, we are here to support you in that endeavor, whatever it may be, you might not even know it yet, but we want to give you the opportunity to explore that on your own and then be able to provide you the resources that are necessary to, to go out and pursue that, uh, recognizing that that's important for, for life after hockey. As, as a third bit of regulation, there was efforts on the part of a newly founded joint program between the NHL and the NHLPA that were trying to merge these two ideas. It was important to also pursue something outside of sport. The argument being that you could actually be a better athlete if you took some time away from the sport. It's almost counterintuitive. Is that you needed a break from the sport. And as part of that break, you could pursue an alternative identity, an alternative area of interest. So again, uh, examples provided about uh, National Hockey League players starting up their own businesses while they're still athletes. And, and, and the association, the National Hockey League Players Association, through this novel program, providing resources to, to help athletes in that regard. In some respects, there's these conflicting forms of regulation because you have teams saying, well, we primarily want 
the members of our teams to be athletes. That's their primary goal. That's their primary reason why they're being paid. And if they're to be involved in anything else is, is sort of counterproductive to our ultimate ends of winning. And then you have individuals at the association level and then maybe even at the league level to a certain extent who are saying, we recognize that may be beneficial in the short term, but that can also cause long-term problems if somebody's only dedicating themselves to the sport and to nothing else. And so we want to be able to provide resources and access to opportunities to, to develop you as a, as a broader person. And we believe in doing that, that you'll actually succeed because you'll have be able to have a, something of a break from the sport. And so I think, you know, I'm not sure how well that sums up the research. Oh, but, I think it uh, sums it up really well. We have these different influences coming in. We want you to be a, a cutthroat, determined, performance-focused athlete. But you've got other organizations saying, hang on. You know, they need to do something else at some point. I, I guess the third organization you, you spoke, the, the, the league there is trying to say, well, how can we do both? Now, how did uh, this advance our, our understanding of the theory? How did this advance our, our knowledge, uh, basically? I think what this study helped to do was to go a level beyond perhaps what Alvison and Will. And what I mean by that is they, as an example, they will say that Part of the way that managers and organizations can regulate identities, particularly in this context of sport, is by teaching knowledge and skills. So in hockey, you can teach uh, athletes how particular systems, or how to shoot a puck better or how to skate better. But then I think what this, uh, what the research project also showed was that organizations, as an example, were enabling those efforts. So I was just reading an article yesterday where there was a, a team that has hired their fifth ex-athlete to work as a player development coach. And so as one of the, the managers in the, in the study described is you have gone from a time perhaps as recently as 15 years ago or so where you maybe only had a head coach and assistant coach to now where you have a head coach, two assistant coaches, a video coach, a physiotherapist, a psychologist, a... Uh, Liverpool have a throw-in coach. Well, there you go. I mean, so we, so when you have that many coaches, you're you're enabling the construction of an athletic identity. So you're you're pouring all of these resources, both financial and human, into constructing these identities. And what this study perhaps does is perhaps provide a little bit more detail about the nuances and, and the specific practices that managers and organizations put into place. Uh, another is that from from my reading is that this is a unique case of interorganizational regulation. So I was describing earlier about how there's teams on the one hand want athletes to be athletes and then you perhaps have pressures or, or power being um, imposed by other organizations saying consider for this other alternative and so here these athletes are stuck in the middle if you will saying well my team is telling me to do one thing my association might be telling me to do something different the league is telling me even something different and so here's a case of regulation where it's not just an organization and, and, and its employee. It's an, an organization, its employee, an employee with its membership, an employee with its with its greater league. And so how does an individual necessarily try to account for these multiple forms of regulation? And so part of the, the answer to that, again, which hopefully comes across in the article, is you see that teams make efforts to almost sideline the efforts of other organizations to make an impact. They spoke with managers who said, uh, this program you're talking about to help athletes develop off the ice, 
we've never heard of that. Uh, and in some respects, we don't want to hear about that because it seems, again, to be counterproductive to our primary goal of winning games. So based on, on, on all this understanding and knowledge, let's say you, you got the dream job or you, you became a billionaire and, and bought your own ice hockey team. What would you do to help athletes uh, transitioning into retirement? I made sure in my thesis as well as in this article to outline several strategies specific to the sport of hockey, but I think that apply to to a certain extent to, to several other sports in terms of what could be done in short to provide athletes some room to breathe, to, to have that room for, for development that is not necessarily tied to sport. And so the article outlines a number of suggestions. And if you want to take one example is, is just shortening the schedule, frankly speaking, uh, here in North America. Now, again, I know that man, managers, and there are articles certainly uh, speaking to managers about this very issue, is just that that, that's a lot of money to forego. I mean, everybody, and it, and it affects players as well. I mean, if uh, the suggestion I think in the paper was to perhaps cut out maybe 10% of the season or whatnot, or to shorten the season in some respect. And again, it's about providing athletes more space to involve themselves in the community, to involve themselves in activities outside of sport, to explore themselves a little bit more. But I recognize at the same time, there's there are certain uh, barriers to that possibility. And the, the primary one being financial, uh, again, with all parties involved, um, the National Hockey League, and I believe to a slightly lesser extent, the American Hockey League has a season schedule that's in some cases 20 games longer than the next closest professional league in, in, in Europe or in, in Russia. And so those are your, your next tier, your next best leagues in the world. And yet their schedules in often cases are much shorter. And, and if, if you look at cases like Sweden or Germany, the travel is also much less. You can go from one end to the country within a couple of hours as opposed to flying from one end to, of North America to the other. And there's a whole host of other uh, things that address potential change with regard to regulation. The number of awards that are pre presented, for example. In, in professional hockey, there are awards for every single game, for the week, for the month, for the year, for, for one's career. And you sort of wonder, well, is this all necessary? And what is the point of all of this? And well, the point in, in part is to have players focus on their performance on an, on an every, everyday basis. And then there's other examples in terms of providing more resources towards development outside of, uh, outside of sport. So as I mentioned earlier, there's no internal example of an organization dedicating resources to personal development. The Los Angeles Kings, to their credit, had something a few years ago, has since, has since been terminated, if I'm not mistaken. But there's an opportunity for athletes, but there's an opportunity, sorry, for, for organizations to invest further resources in the development of their whole athletes, as opposed to just the athlete, athletic component of it. Putting more emphasis on holistic athlete development, I think, is the, is the, is the short answer to that, uh, my previously long-winded response. Not at all. It seems treating them as people and giving them a break, which I think sports psychologists and sports scientists would agree with as well, because physically, it seems like it's too much too. Physically, mentally, uh, again, one of the managers I spoke with at the American Hockey League level said the only reason why he had such a lengthy career in the sport as he did, and it was, I think, nearly two decades long, was because he found an outlet outside of sport, had nothing to do with sport. And he said he had an opportunity to invest himself in that, and it gave him a break to, to have a break from the media, the pressures of fans and the pressures of winning, the pressures of the sport. And so there was just an opportunity for him to do something completely disconnected from it. 
and that in his in his words i think recharged him every single time it was it was like coming to the arena refreshed it was able to have a break then come back in and 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 the effects of all of that and again this is where i hope the the research project uh, try to do this to a certain extent was to ask managers and organizations to reflect on 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 the sorts of individuals they're developing and then asking fellow scholars to give greater, greater consideration to it as well and again hopefully inspire some other future research projects that uh, can apply a critical lens to industry and uh, where it might be going in the future well, andrea i think it's going to be beneficial to both athletes and sport organizations, uh, what you've done with your research. So thanks so much. Thank you for the time. I greatly appreciate it again. And, and uh, if anybody has any questions or would like to discuss this matter further, by all means, uh, please reach out to me. Uh, I, I would love the opportunity to discuss this with you. I think you might be inundated with emails very soon. <laughs> thanks, uh, Andre. Thank you. And thanks for listening to Sport Management Review Insights. At the Sport Management Review website, you'll find all the latest research being published, including the article discussed in this episode, Identity Regulation in the North American Field of Men's Professional Ice Hockey, an Examination of Organizational Control and Preparation for Athletic Career Retirement, from Volume 23, Issue 5. That's it for this episode, but take a look. There's plenty more that you can download to your favorite podcast player. Until then, it's bye for now.